Deuteronomy 9.10 says that the finger of God inscribed on the stone tablets. It's not even he spoke these words, he wrote them with his finger. I, I looked it up from last week. I thought, ah, maybe that really didn't happen. We just start thinking it happened. But Deuteronomy 9.10 says it did. So here are the words. And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or on waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. Thank you, Jim. We're going to talk about the Sabbath day next week. I thought we'd uh, change the order a little bit and talk about you shall not kill, uh, since this uh, in many churches is Sanctity of Life Sunday. So today I want to talk about that sixth commandment, you shall not kill. You say, Dave, how can you be for capital punishment when the sixth commandment says you shall not kill? This seems like an obvious command, does it not? But I think it's a little more complex than we think. Because when you read through scripture, it appears that some forms of life-taking are not wrong. In fact, even commanded by God. I mean, God drowned the whole world one time. Modern-day humanists have stretched this command to great compassionate campaigns like Save the Whales and the Seals and the Bald Eagles and the Timber Wolves and other little cute little furry creatures. And we all love these creatures. Yet many of those same folks are in favor of abortion. Today I want to clarify what it means to kill. And then I want to take that definition and I want to apply it to a few different areas in our culture. And then lastly, I want to look at what Jesus said about this commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so I want to answer three questions today. Question number one, what does it mean to kill? What is the sixth commandment really saying? Did you know that there are seven Hebrew words for kill in the Old Testament? And the word used here in the sixth commandment is rightly translated in the New International Version as murder. 
It's important to know that the Hebrew verb used here for to murder is never used in the Bible for things like killing an opponent in war or for executing someone who has been condemned to death or for killing an animal for sacrifice. This sixth commandment forbids killing a person directly, like when Cain murdered Abel, you know, in Genesis chapter 4, or indirectly, like when David killed Uriah by ordering somebody else to do it, and you find that in 2 Samuel chapter 11. This Hebrew word kill is used in the sixth commandment in Genesis 20, 13, and it means premeditated murder. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, where Hannah is just praising God for her son Samuel, and she prays, the Lord brings death and makes life. God is the creator of life. And so it's only logical that God has the right to determine, to determine the end of life. Not Dr. Kevorkian and not uh, any hemlock society. So basically, you shall not kill. It means you shall not murder. Number two on your outline, the second question that we want to answer today is, how does the sixth commandment apply to different areas of life and different areas of living? First of all, this command refers to the murder of human life, not animal life. Genesis 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The image of God. There is a sanctity. There is a a sacredness of all human life because we're created in his image. Animals are not created in the image of God. That doesn't mean we can abuse animals or we can't love our animals, but it does mean that man has dominion and sovereignty over animal life. Thou shalt not kill. How does this commandment relate to suicide? I know many of you in our church know someone, whether it's a family member or a friend, a neighbor, that has committed suicide. Did you know it's against the law to commit suicide? It's also against God's law. And if God does not allow us to murder another human, he certainly doesn't allow us to murder ourselves. And some say, well, how can suicide be wrong when my life belongs to me? Well, according to Scripture, your life does not belong to you. Your life belongs to God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you're not your own. You know, you were bought with a price. Taking your life is a privilege that belongs only to God and no Christian should do it. Suicide is a form of murder. And the devil gets people to do that. Jesus says of the devil in John chapter 8, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Jesus says, the thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. So suicide is a form of murder. In many states, suicide has surpassed traffic accidents as the chief cause of death among young people. But nevertheless, people need to know that suicide is murder because it involves a person taking the power of life and death into his or her own hands, a power that's God's alone. Now, 
Let me tell you, I am not, I'm not condemning uh, those who commit suicide. You know, God alone is their judge. I read in Psalm 73, 26, where the psalmist, he cries out in deep distress, my flesh and my heart may fail. And sometimes they do fail. God alone can be our judge. I know several people in my, my own mind who have taken their lives, who I believe are with the Lord today. Their hearts and their minds literally failed them. They were overwhelmed with life's trials and tribulations and were not capable of making a decision. No, I don't believe all people who commit suicide go to hell. But I also don't believe all people who commit suicide go to heaven. But I do say suicide is a form of murder. And it's not an option, really, for a truth-walking, responsible Christian. What about war? I mean, there are rules for war found in Deuteronomy. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. And the Bible says in Romans 19.11, when Jesus comes back, he's going to be riding on a white horse. He's called faithful and true. With justice he judges, and he makes war. Jesus is coming, and he will make war. Some of you have said, Dave, you always talk about abortion. Why don't you talk about war? How does the Sixth Commandment relate to war? You know, the Mennonites and others, uh, you know, in, in their conscience, are, they're pacifists. They say Christ tells us to love our enemies and not to resist evil with force. And that those who draw the sword will die by the sword. So what if everyone was a pacifist? Lots of innocent people would be killed. I mean, wasn't it about 18 years ago or 9-11 happened? Now, there are other people like myself who believe that some wars are just. That defending ourselves is better than letting an unjust aggressor kill innocent people. Like I said before, not all life-taking is murder. In fact, sometimes it's even commanded by God God at times delegates the authority to take a human life to other human beings, maybe like capital punishment. I don't think I could ever pull the switch, but, you know, I think the government has biblical support to do that. In, in Genesis 9-6, Noah is given the power of capital punishment after the flood. By man shall his blood be shed. Whoever sheds the blood of man, for in the image of God, God has made man. In Exodus 21, 23, capital punishment was reinstated by Moses in the law to Israel. You are to take uh, life for life. In other words, the punishment must fit the crime. And I, I know sometimes that doesn't happen. Romans 13, 4 tells us the Roman Empire has the power of the sword. You know, that is life and death. And that's the New Testament. And when Jesus was standing before Pilate, Jesus made it clear that it was God, God, that had given the Roman government power to release or to crucify. John chapter 19, Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. 
What about self-defense? Clearly, the Bible teaches that we are not to spread the gospel with the sword. You know, we tried that. That didn't work. That wasn't a very good witness. And also not to resist religious persecution with physical force. But I want us to turn to Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Jesus told his disciples, if you don't have a soul, sword, sell your cloak and go buy one. Since swords were forbidden by Jesus to advance the, the gospel or for defense against being persecuted for the gospel, I think we can safely say Jesus commanded the use of a sword as a means of self-defense. I mean, when Paul's life was threatened by unruly men, he appealed to his Roman citizenships and he accepted the protection of the Roman army. Thou shalt not kill. The prohibition is against murder. Not against all life-taking. And not all life-taking is murder according to Scripture. Capital punishment is not murder. Like I said, I don't know if I could pull the switch. War in defense of the innocent is not murder. And war against an unjust aggressor is not murder. And I'm not a war hawk. I'm not a blind patriot that says my country right or wrong. Well, let me say this. Christ never gives us, under any circumstances, the right to hate our enemies. War must be fought in an agony of spirit. It must be done regretfully, repentantly, realizing that it's the second best decision. A Christian will not show hatred or a revengeful spirit or gloating over a fallen enemy. A Christian will instead show only love and forgiveness and mercy, even in the midst of war. What about abortion? Tuesday, we remember, we do not celebrate. Roe Ro versus Wade. My daughter, uh, Elise, was just at the March for Life. She said, Dad, it was just wonderful. You know, we, we might hear of one incident or something like that, but loving people, no profanity, no vulgarity, just people, 500,000 marching for life. Think about the majestic omnipotence of our God in the formation of our bodies. You know, Psalm 39, I've preached on that many times. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Let me say this. The only real important question is this. What lives inside of the mother after the time of conception, if the growing object within the mother is a human being, as the best medical evidence indicates, and as scripture indicates, then the sixth commandment applies right here. And, they, and that human being deserves protection. As a sacred human life, there's more protection in this country for an eagle's egg than for an unborn human life, and that's wrong. And by the way, being pro-life is being pro-science. Being pro-life is being pro-science. This generation right now, this younger generation, they are the life, the pro-life generation because of that point right there. You look at the medical evidence, the photographs of the baby practically from conception onward, and you'll agree with me that 
that baby is more than just a potential human being. That baby is a human being with potential. That baby isn't fully developed even after the baby is born. Unborn babies are the only ones condemned to death because of geography. That is where they live. And I believe that abortion is definitely the taking of innocent life. Like the take, like the, like the innocent blood of Abel. It, it cries out from the ground to the Lord for justice. We are killing our children. 25 to 30 children a day, a week in here. Fargo, you know, Fargo, North Dakota. Like Israel is described in Psalm 106, verse 37 and 38. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. Revival's not going to come to America until we repent, especially of this outrageous sin. What we have done in America, over 60 million children murdered and offered, not to the idols of Canaan, but to the God of convenience and secret sin. And it's got to stop, beginning right here in North Dakota. I asked Jody Clemens to share a word of testimony today. And we're going to do this every month, having somebody share a testimony. But while she's coming, I want to share. Uh, she's with a group. It's called PALS. Uh, and it's post-abortive ladies that speak. And she's speaking at Concordia College with these ladies like three times tomorrow, I believe. This is uh, put up on our bulletin board in the foyer. And then uh, the 40 Days for Life, I've had the privilege of being on the 40 Days for Life committee with Jody. And um, they're having an evening of Thanksgiving on Tuesday, that's January 22nd, 7 to 8.30 at the Avalon Events Center. And a lady named Ramona Trevino is going to be there. And she's changed from, from being the director of a Planned Parenthood place uh, to now being a warrior for life. And you're invited to these meetings. Jody, come and just share with us. And then I'll finish my message. Yeah, thank you, Jody, for being here. Yeah. Thank you, Dave and Calvi, for having me today. When I was 23, I made a decision that changed my life forever. What I had done, I could never undo. And I vowed that no one would ever know about it and that I would never, ever talk about it again. After that time, I lived for a very long time in a dark place. It was my self-made prison. It was a place of shame and guilt and, yes, great fear. It was a place of suffering, a place of pain, and a place of isolation and secrecy. Now, I knew I was guilty. I had chosen to do this unthinkable act. I deserved to be punished. And I believed that I had committed a sin that was just too big and too bad. I was undeserving of forgiveness, yes, even by God. 
I feared how others would react if they ever found out. And I lived in that dark place for many, many years. Now, people around me didn't know this. Not my husband, my children, my friends, my family. I hid it very well. It was my secret. I tried very hard to fix myself up, if you will, to clean up my act. You see, I worked very hard to prove to God and to others that I really was a good person, thinking that somehow if I was just doing enough good, that somehow it would outweigh this horrific, horrific bad in my life. My unspeakable secret. I even at times fool myself, pretend like it never happened. Turning off my emotions, I could go along just fine for a while. Then all of a sudden, this intense fear and this anxiety would come crashing back into my life. I feared that God was so angry with me that he was just going to strike down and punish me. I feared that others would know, and they would never accept me. They may even leave me. I feared that I was never, ever going to be good enough and never be forgiven. Now, I didn't understand a lot about God at that time in my life. Even though I had been raised in a home, probably much like your homes, where faith was practiced and faith was emphasized, Yet my understanding of God at the very best was very shallow. But he is so good. And he is so kind. And he is so patient. And he quietly and gently started to bring truth into my life. The truth about who he really is. The truth about sin and forgiveness and grace and mercy. The truth that his heart is towards the humble, the brokenhearted, those in despair, those that are distraught. That sounded a lot like me. And slowly, but very surely, I started to realize the extent of God's love. That when God, out of love, sent his son Jesus into this broken world to walk on this earth and to minister and then to suffer and to die. But that was for me too. It wasn't for all the good people. I was not excluded. And it didn't matter that the name of that one sin, my secret sin, was abortion. As ugly and horrific as that sin is, what mattered then and what matters now is Jesus. And when that truth, the truth of God's word, penetrated my heart and began to, roll, to grow, those walls of my dark prison, that dark place, those walls of shame and guilt and fear and condemnation, left me standing in the light of God's truth where my shame 
and my guilt and my fear were replaced with God's healing, hope, and freedom. A place where my grief was exchanged for God's grace and my pain for his peace. A a place where my past no longer had to define my future or who I was. So today I choose to speak publicly because I know that there are so many people who are living in dark places with your secret sin, believing that you're just too messy and too broken, believing that you're just so undeserving of God's love and forgiveness. These are people that we encounter every day. They're in your homes. They're in your families. They're where you work. And yes, they're even in our church. So I speak publicly today with great confidence to tell you that I am forgiven, I am healed, and I am set free. And that is my story. You know, in the past 40 years, I'm just going to take a minute, the past 40 years there have been over 60 million abortions, as Pastor Dave said, 60 million. And that's a mind-boggling number, isn't it? And I fear, and this is for Christians, that because the word abortion is so frequently used in our society that we have really lost sight of what it is. What comes to your mind when you hear the word abortion? Politics? Choice? A woman's right? Health care? If so, my friends, that is not where God's mind goes. It is not how God views abortion. Each abortion is the intentional killing of another human being. That was my secret sin. A life that was valuable to God and deserved to be loved. A life that is very vulnerable, has no mode of self-defense, and it committed no crime. A life that is always abandoned by their father, forsaken by their mother, and unfortunately forgotten by society. Each abortion also impacts the lives of those left behind. It is estimated, now listen to this number, that one in four women, by the time they reach the age of 45, will have at least one abortion. One in four women. They suffer in silence, my friends. They sit in the pews of our church. They sing in our choirs. They serve on our church boards. They teach Sunday school. They attend our prayer meetings. And they deeply, deeply fear that you're going to find out what they have done, their secret sin. So today I want to challenge you, Calvary. Will we be a church that views abortion as God views abortion? Will Calvary be a place that truly repents of this national sin, this sin against God and this crime against humanity, a sin that God hates and so should we? Will we be a safe place, a place of refuge for those suffering the aftermath of abortion like I was? A place that offers compassion, truth, hope, and healing. A place where all know that they are deserving of God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness. Will Calvary be a place where all know that no one is excluded? You You all now know my story. 
And now I want to ask each of you, what will be the story of Calvary? Amen. Thank you, Jody. Let's pray together. God, you've given us uh, all a story, those of us who claim your name and Lord, whatever, whatever sin it is, God, we just thank you for your blood that can wash us and make us white as snow. Lord, thank you for that joy. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for chances, Lord, to, to live out the truth, but also to speak out the truth. But let the truth set us free today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to finish out this message and then uh, invite, you know, after we have an offering before we leave and sing the, the last hymn, uh, there'll be people uh, uh, to pray uh, for those that are wanting prayer today. But abortion leads to other types of killing. Why not legalize the killing of old people, you know, who are no longer useful? Why not kill mentally retarded babies at birth? Six months after England passed the permissive Abortion law, a law was introduced into Parliament to legalize mercy killing. <laughs> it was barely defeated. There are so many other ways to kill. Many kill their bodies with food, with alcohol, cigarettes. We murder by carelessness. What about reckless driving? I mean, children can drive their parents to an early grave, right? By disobedience and ingratitude and rebellion. There are so many implications really found in the Sixth Commandment. Thou shalt not kill I don't want to move into the last question and then we'll be done. What did Jesus think of this commandment? Number three on your outline, I mean, how does he explain it? If you turn to, to Matthew 5, 21 and 22, it says, You have heard it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is Jesus talking here. Wow. Now, in no way was Jesus nullifying the sixth commandment. Like I said last year, the law wasn't given to save us. It was to show us how bad we need a savior. He's just getting to the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is anger. The Jews were living under the heel of the cruel Romans. They probably thought of lots of ways, you know, to get even, to torture, to inflict painful deaths. Jesus got right to the point. Have you ever wished somebody were dead? The Old Testament prohibited only the outward blow, which would kill. Jesus went right to the heart. And he included the inward things like resentment and bad feelings. Oh, what are you talking? Passions, insults, which could later lead to physical blows. In other words, Jesus warns us against the anger. Now, Jesus is not forbidding proper anger, but that's awful hard for human beings to do. He got angry at the right time, at the right place, about the right things in the right way. In fact, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and don't sin. Mark 3, verse 5, it says, He looked at them, that is, these Pharisees, 
in anger. A lot of Christians need to learn how to get angry like that, but Jesus did not condone personal anger, that out-of-control, resentful anger. Jesus says the only difference between murder and anger or insult and hate is in degree. And isn't that the way it happens? First comes resentment, and then insult, and then hatred, and then finally, murder. Some of us uh, murder slowly in our homes with our uncontrollable temper and insulting remarks. I know, I've said some things I'm ashamed of, you know, the way I've said them. Oh, I've tried to blame it on my parents or my hot, feisty Italian blood, but that's a cop-out because I am responsible. I mean, even after his sexual escapades, Tiger Wood said, I am responsible. TV evangelist Jimmy Baker, remember way back in the 80s? He wrote a book later on. He said, I was wrong. Jesus broadened the sixth commandment out and he makes us responsible for taking the initiative to love someone who is unloving and is even unlovable. Even if that someone is your wife or your husband or your kids, you, Jesus says, in effect, as my disciple, you make the first move toward forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God is raising up a generation of people, young and old, who will live out this sermon on the mount. Lovers of God, lovers of people, lovers of truth. Jesus realized anyone who hurt, insulted, or hated him was in deep spiritual need and in need of his love. And we do just the opposite. We become angry when we've been hurt because we're concerned about ourselves, aren't we? But Jesus cared about the other person, even when it cost him his life. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar first. First. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus knew how easily we break the sixth commandment. We need to quit playing the victim you as a disciple of Jesus are responsible to get things right. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Don't kill your enemy is what Jesus is saying. Kill him with kindness. Love him to death instead. Kill your enemy by loving him until he dies as an enemy and is reborn as a friend. Make a friend. Be a friend. Bring your friend to Jesus Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's what they didn't like about him. Do you need to be reconciled with anyone? That's not easy. But Jesus never said it would be. It may cost you something, like your prestige, your name, your power, your ego, your pride. It would be impossible without the Spirit of God living in and through us, who tells us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. 
Let's pray together. God in heaven, you told us not to kill. And yet we kill our children through abortion. We've allowed a society to be created that glorifies death and cheapens life, human life. We kill our brain cells with alcohol. We kill our bodies and our hearts with overeating. We kill our relationships with unforgiveness and anger. We kill our churches with gossip and slander. We harbor anger and resentment and jealousy. Forgive us, God. Change us, God. You've given us life. You created us in your image, and because we are created in your image, God, life is precious, life is sacred, life is a gift, and because of this, everybody matters to you, Lord. Each person we run into, each person we lock eyes with is someone for whom you died, Jesus. Our sin condemns us. Our sin convicts us. Carry us to the cross, Lord, to see what you did there for us. Breathe life, God, into marriages that are all but dead. Breathe life into relationships that Satan has snuffed out through gossip and slander. Breathe life into the deadness of our hearts where secret sin has numbed us to the truth of the gospel. Breathe life into fractured family and broken hearts. Jesus, we confess and we declare and we claim that you are the resurrection and the life that you came that we might have life and have it more abundantly and we want to commit our lives again to the mission of this church the call of this church to know Jesus and to make him known I pray that that would happen Lord and now as we receive your tithe and our offerings God I pray that we would glorify you in our giving Lord let this be an expression of love and worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Leave here following Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. Amen. Amen.